When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I know what it's like when you're just starting out and you think you have all the time in the world. And, you know, you're not going to be so young forever. Have kids. And you'll be creating something together. And, of course, have kids so that they call you mother. Try again. Mother! That's the one. The venerable Michelle Pfeiffer in that clip sharing her wisdom with Jennifer Lawrence in the new film from Black Swan director Darren Aronofsky. It's called Mother. And it opens in wide release this weekend. My mom wouldn't let me see the movie that will go momentarily unmentioned. So on this show, Michael Phillips will join Josh for the review. Then I'll jump back in to share our top five Darren Aronofsky scenes. That and more. I'm really going to miss hearing you say this title. Ahead on Film Spotting. We were planning to see the new Aronofsky film together, but my plans changed and I couldn't make the screening. Luckily, the great Michael Phillips was right there, ready to pinch it, eager to talk about the movie. Swooped right in, as he did for the last Aronofsky <laughs> film that I don't know. Should I suspect something here, Adam? You weren't around for Noah either. That is bizarre. The, the, now you love it. I do now love you're Noah. N- the world's biggest Noah fan. I might be. Only second to our producer, Sam Van Hallgren, who gave it on Letterboxd. Five stars. Well, he's a crazy person. We know that. (laughs) He is. But speaking of you and Michael and Aronofsky, back in March 2014, that's when you did your review of Noah and you shared your top five movie boats. Of course we did. (laughs) This great tradition of you and Michael. I should never leave you guys alone for top fives. That's why I'm doing the top five this week, because we got boats. We got manimals. I mean, you got some other items on that top five bucket list I should know about. I share all my good top five ideas for when it's me and Michael. (laughs) Well, if you want to hear that just fabulous top five and their Noah review, you can find it on episode 483. It's in the Film Spotting archives at filmspotting.net. If you know, you want to make sure they remember to include Goldie Hawn's Yacht and Overboard, one of my favorite 80s movies. Spoiler, Adam. You're not going to reveal it here? No. Okay. Well, I'll be back for this week's top five Darren Aronofsky scenes in a little bit. And we will also have the latest entry in the film Spotting Five, a rapid-fire Q&A with Koganada, who is the director of the new film Columbus. Very good film. Just opened here in Chicago and Select Cities last weekend. Still playing here in Chicago this weekend. We certainly encourage you to see it. It is, in fact, the latest Golden Brick nominee, I think has a really good shot of being a finalist at the end of the year. And I had a pretty lengthy conversation with Koganada that we're going to save for next week's show. But we are going to get to the film Spotting Five, hear about the latest movie he saw, his favorite books about the movie-making process. All good stuff, I promise. But first, it's time to have a talk about Mother. Please, come in. Hello. Hello. He's a stranger. We're just going to let him sleep in our house. Hello. Hello. Did you know he had a wife? (laughs) 
you and his luggage. What were you doing in their luggage? What do they want? God help you. So the real reason Adam wasn't allowed into the mother screening was because he couldn't say the name of the film correctly. He still kept saying it as a question mark, he not did. He, an exclamation he point. Was, he was, it really sounded like a 60s sitcom, like, like Hey Landlord or something. Hey, hey, Ma! You know, that's what it sounded like. It sounded like Ma? It, yeah, that's it. Yeah. It was, it was mother? kind of embarrassing. So you, Michael Phillips, who can say the title the right way, you were allowed in. And now you're gracious enough to fill in for our review. Thank you very much. Well, it's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Actually, Adam had a last minute conflict come up. He will be here for the top five later on in the show. So Mother, written and directed by Darren Aronofsky, is a domestic thriller with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. They play a somewhat stifled poet and his much younger wife. In the course of the film, the palatial rural home she's renovating while he tries to work through writer's block is visited by, let's just say, increasingly unwelcome guests. Hmm. Fair good. enough, that's right? A, we'll that's leave a, that's it at a there. good non-spoiler description. We're going to do our best here. All right, Michael, since we did just come from the screening, this is what Adam and I like to call a still processing review. For you, <laughs> perhaps a rough draft review, as I know you're going to file your final thoughts for the Chicago Tribune a bit later. So let's jump right in. Appropriately, Michael, I have a punctuation-related question for you. Does Muller deserve the exclamation point of its title, which implies excitement, intrigue, enthusiasm, or would a more skeptical question mark be more appropriate for Aronofsky's <laughs> Adam's, film? Adam's reading. Does, does Adam's <laughs> is, reading apply is, is he right after all? <laughs> I think it's more of an ellipsis. I think it's okay. a mother. Dot, dot, dot. All right, three dots. Yes. Don't you think? But I, 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 God, you know, talk about just hacking through your first impressions. But it's, it's, um, I, I, I was with this one actually. I think it's a weird combination of uh, predictable in some ways, even though it's got it's full of spoilers. Because it, it reminded me of, for reasons I'll go into it in a little bit. You know, it reminded me of kind of a like a mid '60s Edward Albee play. And I hate to throw around the theater references, but they were among the first that came to mind. If you've ever seen A Delicate Balance, which is kind of a normal, straight-up, realistic play, and then you have a couple that uh, visits and will not leave. And that's, that's, there are elements of that. Uh, we can say that, I think, again, without getting into spoiler territory. We have a couple that um, – uh, well, first, a character played by Ed Harris – who visits the couple, known only as, I believe, Mother and Him. Those are the character names, not him and her. Oh, no I didn't know names, that. But okay. It's, but it's according, you know, the, again, I think I'm still this side of the spoiler issue. Mother, Jennifer Lawrence, and Him, okay, uh, is visited by this man, unnamed man, and then this unnamed man's wife, uh, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, shows up. And they're both having a lot of fun. They're having a lot say, of fun. As and, actors. And, yeah, they are. And they're, I had fun watching them. Yeah, and it, and it reminded me a little bit of these Albee plays, and especially a more recent one called The Play About the Baby. And that's that's another, it's, it's, a, it's an absurdist premise that gets crazier and crazier, but it's also played straight. And I think despite sort of the, uh, the eh, if you don't like Mother or Mother, if you don't like it, <laughs> You're going to find, I think, the technique a little tiring, a little exhausting. And Aronofsky, God knows, has never been a minimalist. And and I think often when a movie of his doesn't work for me, 
or I find myself kind of resisting. And, and it depends on if you revisit it and maybe you find something else in it. But I saw Requiem for a Dream recently again, and I found that that's a movie where I just thought, you know, just calm down and tell the story. Hmm. And that's a totally square uh, response to it. But actually, I think the technique in this film is his way of telling this increasingly outlandish and enormous uh, parable, I guess you'd call it, of, um, you know, you name it, uh, motherhood, uh, couplehood, marriages in crisis. I think there's a lot, there's an awful lot of self-examination going on here with Aronofsky, just about what it's like to be uh, either uh, a writer with writer's block or a filmmaker who's achieved some success and then, uh, or been with somebody uh, who's achieved great success and then suddenly the marriage is in trouble for other reasons. So I think, I think if Aronofsky were honest, and I, I think he, you know, is, it's up to you when you see the film to say if he's being honest, he's actually saying that uh, as an artist, he's probably unlivable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> deeply but, personal is the feeling you get from watching this film, right. I think. And so how much you're going to like it may be, for me at least, it's, well, how can I relate to it mm-hmm. in a way uh, while still appreciating what he's trying to say, perhaps from his own personal experience and teasing out those clues. Although you're you're right as well. We're going to be dancing around a lot, but I think this thing becomes almost thuddingly literal mm-hmm. at the end. And and I liked it overall. I was on board with Mother more than perhaps Black Swan, which I think is something in terms of the hysteria it creates and the tenor it eventually reaches, mm-hmm. the pitch it reaches. That works better for me here. Huh. Um, and I'd have to revisit Black Swan to see if that was my problem before. But I do think I followed along. The intensity here, for one thing, is so tied to Jennifer Lawrence for much of the film, the majority of the film, really. The camera is close, extreme close-ups of her face here. When she moves, it's always following. It's almost as if it's resting on her shoulder. And we're very much getting this woman's perspective of what begins as... Uh, her concern over her husband's writer's block and how she can help with that and maybe how these guests are not helping, even though he's more welcoming right. of them than R- she is. Right, right. We should uh, jump back and j- we can talk about some specific literal things that happened very early on and would actually help people, ground people and kind of get the film at least in some focus at the beginning. We see a house in this charred, ruined state. We see a woman possibly Jennifer Lawrence, possibly somebody else at the beginning, you know, in sort of a Joan of Arc burned, you know, burned estate. Uh, we see Javier Bardem pick up a, a, what looks like an enormous diamond and out of the ashes of the ruins of the house, right, and place the diamond in this sort of hallowed little stand. And suddenly the house magically kind of becomes made over and kind of beautiful. It's this gorgeous farmhouse filmed up somewhere in Canada. And then this is the house that the Jennifer Lawrence character has been painstakingly restoring. So we know that he, him, <laughs> is is recovering from the loss of the house and and whatever else he lost in the house. We don't know. We, we fill in the blanks. Prior relationship, uh, aside from all his material belongings, what? Maybe his inspiration as a writer is gone. We, we can kind of fill that in later, but what we know is what I've just described, and we know that Lawrence is it's sort of in this tentative caretaker role about her husband's 
uh, writing career. Oh, how are you doing? Do you still have writer's block? It's a very, it's a somewhat subservient role. Yeah, that's, that's a good she, word. She's for dealing it. with a pill, basically. You know what I mean? The guy is the guy is a whiny uh, a poet who is who is uh, struggling to find his inspiration, his muse, and get back on track. And that's the opening few minutes of Mother. And that could also be something we don't know at this point from his imagination. The movie also deals with unreliable narrators, I think, mm-hmm. which is something Aaron. Aronofsky has done before, perhaps, you know, most obviously in his first film, Pi, where we're not sure exactly what that main character, this troubled mathematician, is actually seeing or experiencing and what's in his head. And same with Black Swan, which, absolutely. I, it, which remains his most widely seen film. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's there, too. So there are questions throughout this film as to what we're actually seeing. When is it literal? When is it metaphorical? And, and what might it mean? The movie that came to mind for me... Uh, you were mentioning references for you, Michael, was the Varda film that we just saw recently as part of our Varda marathon, The Creatures, because oh. <laughs> that with Catherine Deneuve and Michelle Piccoli, I believe, um, as also a writer looking for inspiration. She's somewhat his muse. And this seaside area where they live becomes at once their real life and part of his creation. Mm. Uh, and I think we're seeing something of the same thing happening here in Aronofsky's film. Yeah, and now, I, think, I think the unavoidable comparison, too, that, that you saw early and it was picked up on the poster design was Rosemary's Baby. Now, yeah. we, we can say that and we can say, again, without spoiling it, that people can relax a little bit about there being a, a specific narrative parallel to Rosemary. We're not talking about a coven of, of devil worshippers. Yeah, We're nor is not. this any sort of remake or, or no. anything like that. I no. think there are connections. You can be teased out. Yes. And, and these are sort of the things that, as I sit with it more, I want to find out what are those sub-level metaphors that are at play here. Right. Because as I mentioned, the, the surface one, which we've already somewhat laid out there, does become pretty literal by the end. I'll be eager to see how much my eventual estimation of this film will be in the next few days, how much bubbles to the surface more than what we're given initially when we watch it. Right. Well, and I think also with your religious orientation, just as a human being, as a Re- critic. Religious orientation. No, 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 sorry, no but I'm <laughs> Haven't saying, heard it that way so before. I'm, I'm coming in as an agnostic <laughs> slash atheist, right? Right, right, right. But there's a, there's a tremendous, again, not without blowing anything, but there's a tremendous amount of biblical parallels. Yeah, going, there's, a, there's a great one-liner. <laughs> and, 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 and including characters who eventually show up and, you know, have a few scenes. Anyway, it's... It's that is so kind of brazenly obvious. That yeah, I thought, what you know, is he really going there? But then he kind of he kind of deals with that for a while, and then it's really a bit of a dodge, and he's back to other things. But but I um, think those dodges might be what eventually make it really interesting hmm. again after mm-hmm. we sit for a while and see uh, well how much is there in that dodge to explore? You know what's what's going on there, or was it just a little distraction from what this movie is most obviously about? Right, right, right. I think it for me. Again, for on the first pass, I think it's mainly about <laughs> a filmmaker, a writer, director, and he and he it, it acknowledges in uh, in the production notes for the film that this film just sort of came out in a blurt, like he wrote it in five days, and yeah. it feels like sort of a a weird, unprocessed set of impressions about just kind of maybe what. What he's gone through lately, and I think our Aronofsky, you know, came out of one relationship with Rachel Weisz, uh, with whom he had a, a child, um, and in as one one uh, one of the people at the screening we just came from said, uh, I would pay big money to hear a Rachel Weisz DVD commentary on this particular picture <laughs> because there are maybe aspects of this film uh, that feel a little like. 
um, have a, a bit of a petty streak about maybe what's you know is the impossibility of uh, reconciling uh, marriage, home life, domesticity uh, with uh, um, the torments of the artist, uh, sudden fame, and the aftermath, and, and something's got to give. So here's the tricky thing about that too is. The movie's perspective, if you look at it as this tension between the muse and the creator, uh, where does that perspective ultimately fall? I feel like there is a shift here. I talked about the subjective nature that I found really powerful because the Lawrence character also, she's very attuned to this house that she's renovating. And so everything from the refrigerator were to the kicking on of the boiler, the soundscape of this film is very intense. Yeah, and not and realistic. Yeah. No, it's not. It's completely heightened, but yeah. it builds into her mentality. So we're completely there with her for so much of the film, mm -hmm. but there's, it seems to be bookended by this other perspective. And one of the things that I'm struggling with is how well those two fit together. If there's, if, if part of this movie is about the exploitation of a muse, is it a confession of that or <laughs> is it a further enacting of that? I know. I hope he, I hope he pays us for this 50-minute hour on the couch. <laughs> right. uh, and then at the same time, you have Aronofsky and Jennifer Lawrence uh, basically going public as a romantic couple at the Venice Film Festival last week. News to me, man. You're, you're just like uh, uh, OK up, Magazine here I, across from I checked from up me. on the Venice Festival. And so they, you know, there they are out and about. And there you have a, a relationship that's basically the same age difference as the one in the, in the film, which uh -huh. come, comes under... Yep. So who knows? I, I think it's a – for me, it's a very stimulatingly mixed up film. And, yeah. I, and I, I think he is enough of a filmmaker and he's working in a style that I think is activating enough that I, I did find myself, even when I <laughs> was sort of fighting the specific ideas or maybe some of the metaphors in it, I was kind of rolling with it as a filmmaker. And yeah. that's not always the case with me with Aronofsky. I, well, think, I think this what you talk about, this decision to kind of keep – to keep Lawrence in very tight close-up the whole time, or you're 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 basically seeing the uh, an awful lot of the movie, almost all of it. If it's not a close-up of her, it's her point of view in a very limited way. So that there's a lot of these swish pans as she's scanning the room, and um, you know, uh, there's a certain number of like cheap jump scares that come out of that. Oh, oh, someone's in the frame, you know. But yeah, but not a lot. It's not. I think he's smart enough to not try to. Well, do they're what, not. Well, he's not doing what the what Paramount's marketing department is trying to do, which is <laughs> turn it into a conventional kind of oogly boogly supernatural right, right. thriller. Yeah, the, the jump scares are not the point of those scenes. They're an element within them to build up this sense of um, of sort of growing terror that she has. And I think you know, going back to the the style, there's also some very effective imagery here. Uh, I don't know if I ever want to find out what was in the toilet. In that one scene, yeah. uh, there's the bloody light bulb that explodes. There's the hole in the floor. I, I think now here's maybe a, a personal way in for me, having done significant home renovations <laughs> in an older home. Uh -huh. <laughs> two things. And, survive, and the marriage survives. <laughs> well, so far, right. two things would be um, the way he adds bodily connotations to that. So as the house starts to fall apart, there's a, they, the holes look like wounds quite often, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the scenes where some of these guests begin to uh, take apart the work she's been doing, um, the, the anal retentive part of me, but let, let's just say when she repeatedly tells people, don't sit on that sink, it hasn't been shored up yet. <laughs> I could I could really yeah. resonate with that. Yeah. So, so let's talk about Lawrence a little bit more, you know, subservient. I think you described the character and that goes 
to me, against the qualities that she brings as an actress. You know, right from the very beginning in Winter's Bone, there was this sense of inner strength, um, this sense of being able to take care of herself and not let anyone push her around. I think she fed into that really well for the Hunger Games movies. Not that she hasn't done other stuff, but this – you're right. This is a very subservient performance from her. She doesn't get much to do but – React. React. It's a it's a conduit. Role, How did it work right? for you? It's our it's our it's our way in. You know, I think I don't know if subservience really the, the quite the right word, but uh, I hope to I hope to actually find the right word maybe tomorrow when I write for you. You have a little but, time, yeah. Uh, but it, it gives. She is such a compelling actor. I really do believe she's a major talent. I mean, major. Yeah, and I I'm with you. In ten years, who knows what she's she'll have done by then? But I think um, she she gives she she knows how to activate a passive role. You know, she's just simply interesting enough. You know, in in reaction shots and repose and just sort of finding uh, the uh, the non obvious way to to kind of uh, play a part that might in other hands be just a bit of a doormat or a bit of a sap um, she just can, you know she just is a generality but some actors actresses can convey a tremendous amount of lively intelligence without really doing much and she can do that um, but i think one of the reasons the movie for all the craziness that I think it doesn't work in it, but it did work for me overall, is that she just simply is somebody you follow into this, like, what is happening now? You know, that's a lot of what she has to play. Mm-hmm. It's just simply non-verbally often, what, what, what's going on now? You know, what, this too? And it's all, you know, it, there's so much, there's so much in the story, if you want to call it that, and in the, just the way Mother proceeds that it just is this kind of a series of waking nightmares that, you know, but with her in the middle of it, you feel like, there is some human element, uh, even if Aronofsky's ultimately more interested in the metaphoric ones. Yeah, and I think maybe the movie asks her to do too much of that by its end, where she starts getting rung through the same ringer, only even more heightened. Yeah. But you're right, nonverbal is the way I would describe what's special about her as an actor, is that she can do that sort of communication without a lot of dialogue. Here she doesn't get hardly any dialogue at all. There is that one scene between her and Michelle Pfeiffer, whose character is trying to pry all these personal details out of the Jennifer Lawrence character, who's not giving up much. And suddenly Pfeiffer asks her a question, gets no verbal response, but looks at her face and surmises the answer. And and what's wonderful about that scene is that we've seen Lawrence's face and we've surmised the answer too. Right, right. And that shows you what kind of an actor she is that she can get that across for us i just yeah. it's just a nice moment of recognition pfeiffer's recognition of how great that performance is she's across I, I have to say that's the material those scenes where it's really just like two or three or four of those characters the main ones played by bardem lawrence uh, pfeiffer and and uh, ed harris where it does feel like it's it's kind of like Edward Albee just sort of like had this weird car crash with uh, with a haunted house movie or something. <laughs> yeah, great use of Bardem too. I think who has this you know he's played multiple sides where he's this romantic and yet he can be overbearing and also a formidable physical presence. Right. I think they really play up not only the age difference but the pure size difference between him and Lawrence. And the way he switches from threatening to lovingly enveloping um, in, in a single line and in a single moment, I think that's perfect for what this movie needs for, yeah. for that and part. And you get the sense, and again, it's laid out fairly clearly early on that that the marriage is somewhat 
cool and sexually is sort of nowhere while this guy wrestles with writer's block and the torments of being a, a poet that is not producing. Uh, and and you just have to think that Aronofsky's having a little fun with him, with his own kind of preoccupations as a writer director. You know, he's a very yeah. int- you know he's a, he's almost a comically intense writer, um, uh, and and he knows how to make that uh, those preoccupations and that sort of intensity uh, when he's really working uh, come alive on screen. And I and I, I you know it's not a film I would see uh, easily a second time like right away, but it's but I think that's almost true of. Everything Aronofsky's done. I've seen Black Swan and Requiem for a Dream and a couple others, not The Fountain so much, which you love. I love know. The Fountain. Yeah, I'm still fighting with that one. Um, I, I like coming around again, but just not too quickly. And I'm not sure. Mother's, you know, Mother's uh, not, as, for me, not quite as effective as Black Swan, which played sort of cleaner, easier games about what's fantasy and what's reality. Mm. Uh, this one's much more, you know, aggressive and kind of out there and in there and all over the place. But, yeah. But I, it's a lot of, I, I, I got to say, just as cinema, I, I, I went for it. Yeah, I agree. It doesn't really settle itself in a specific reality at all, even at the very beginning. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and for me, that, that worked. So, you know, whatever mother eventually ends up meaning to you or to me, I think you're right. It will probably always mean the most to Aronofsky. <laughs> He's <Right>. the most <laughs> pleased with it. Yeah, yeah. Probably the most happy that he got it made and got it out of his system. So Mother opens in wide release this weekend. Wide release for this thing. That'll be interesting to see yes. how that goes. The cinema scores are going to be down in like the W's for what <laughs> just happened. Could be. If you end up being one of those folks who see it, let us know if you agree or disagree with mine and Michael's takes. Send your thoughts to feedback at filmspotting.net. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you filling in here. Last minute. What a guy. Now, listeners who want to find your finely refined thoughts on Mother... Where should they go? <laughs> Why do you have to default to Adam's reading of that? It's just I I, I have. Was to, that a question? It's the ellipsis. It's more like mother. A little more anger. Er, er. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, ChicagoTribune.com/slash/movies, and that's where you're going to find the review of Mother in the Tribune. Thanks much. Thank you. We'll be back with our top five Darren Aronofsky scenes and Adam Kempinar. Stay with us. I saw in you what someone once saw in me. Something that can't be taught. The makings of a Kingsman. 
Being a Kingsman is more than the clothing we wear or the weapons we bear. It's about being willing to sacrifice for the greater good. I hope you're ready for what comes next. Those promised top five Darren Aronofsky scenes are coming up in a bit. But first, you heard a bit of the trailer there for Kingsman 2. Josh, my question for you is, does seeing a movie I'm just sure I'm going to hate because it's maybe what we think listeners kind of want us to talk about. Does that count as willing to sacrifice for the greater good? Could I be a Kingsman? You're virtually a saint. By doing this, Adam. Yeah. I mean, give it a chance. Neither of us have seen the first Absolutely. one. So we're not biased because I of don't that. go in wanting to hate any movie. I so might that's be fine. biased because for whatever reason, I've been forced to see this trailer in theaters 6,000 times. You're right. So I'm holding that against the movie. It's been ubiquitous but, this summer. It is driving me yeah. a little crazy. But we'll see. Obviously, we'll watch the first one in the next few days here and then give Kingsman 2. It's not – there's more to it than that, right? It's got to be – It's the golden circle. Of course. See? There you go. Yeah. And Colin Firth does star. That's him as Harry Hart from Kingsman 2. As of now, it does look like the movie we're going to review on next week's show. Now, I was sure our listeners would not care about this movie and would want us to talk about anything else but this film. And then I threw out on Twitter and I had a pull up for 24 to 48 hours and had several hundred votes, Josh. So a pretty good sample size of our audience. I said, do you care about the Kingsman films? Not Do you want us to talk about it? Do you think it's going to be great? Do you hate him? Whatever. Just do you care about the Kingsman movies? And I'm drawing a blank on how it exactly came out, Mm -hmm. but it was only like 53 to 47. No. So the majority of our listeners on Twitter did say not really, but not by much, not by much at all. Not conclusive at all. No. And the only alternative battle of the sexes, while I am curious about that story, of course, Love the stars of that movie, Steve Carell and Emma Stone, and I'm intrigued by the story, of course, the famous story of Bobby Riggs and Billie Jean King and that tennis match from the 70s, I'm pretty sure. We just didn't feel like that was going to be a film that maybe drew a lot of interest. At least the Kingsman movies seem a little bit divisive, so we might get a good conversation out of it. Yeah, that and there's a reason there's a sequel, right? Audiences went to the first one. There's enough interest in it for a second one. I want to catch up with them, even though Matthew Vaughn, the director, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hit or miss. Spotty to yes, negative exactly. on. I would say maybe Stardust is the film of his that worked the best for me. So we'll yeah. see what we get with Kingsman to the what circle? Golden Circle. The Golden Circle. We agree on something as it relates to Matthew Vaughn and probably preferring Stardust to all of his movies. The cast of the new one does include Channing Tatum, Jeff Bridges, Julianne Moore, Taron Egerton. So pretty good cast and we will see what's in store for us as we will have to catch up with the first Kingsman movie. No Sacred Cow review. We're just going to talk about it briefly. Yeah, that seems appropriate. <laughs> okay. We are often promoting movie passes here on the show for our Chicago-based listeners, anybody in the area who likes to come out, see movies for free, see them before they open in most cases. And last week, I don't think we talked about any, maybe Stronger was the one movie we had passes for. And then in the days between that show being recorded and this one being recorded, we added Victoria and Abdul starring Judy Dench, The Florida Project, one of our most anticipated movies of the fall, directed by Sean Baker and the aforementioned Battle of the Sexes. And at this point, as we sit here, they're all gone. If you go to filmspotting.net slash events, the screenings have come and gone. So they go quickly. They can stay up for four or five days and then come down. We just encourage you to regularly check filmspotting.net slash events if you are curious to seek out those free movie passes. 
we usually don't talk about Massacre Theater, Josh, on weeks where we're not performing it's Massacre Theater. forgotten. <laughs> it we is, just, but... We're like athletes. We just move on to the next game. That's exactly right. But last week seems to have been another doozy. I think that's the technical word for it. <laughs> yeah. It was that's one of also our... also a musical term, I think, appropriately. Yes. It was one of our rare musical massacres here on the show, notable for having a lack of accompaniment. In the past, we I have, think... as you said, we've had some music. At live shows, I've brought out the guitar here in the studio before. That's true. To yeah, th- back. this is acapella. Let me give you another right. musical term. And, That's what we were doing. And it was acapella. And you bemoan the fact that we didn't have it. You think your performance would have been oh so much better. Yes. Let's Let's get a little taste of said performance. Well, you got caught with the flat. Well, how about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. So listener Andy Colopy in Astoria, New York, was appropriately horrified by that massacre, as were many others. But unlike everyone else, Andy was proactive. He was in a position to do something about it. He's a pianist and music director in New York City and actually worked up, Josh, an accompaniment for our performance. He wrote, after a little rewriting, Adam skipped a bar and Josh dropped a beat. Really? That's all Josh did? (laughs) I threw together a quick track so that you can hear what your vocal work sounds like with a little musical support. Enjoy. Let's enjoy that massacre again with Andy's handiwork. I'm glad we caught you at home. Could we use your phone? We're both in a bit of a hurry. We'll just say where we are, then go back to the car. We don't want to be any worry. Well, you got caught with the flat. Well, how about that? Well, babies, don't you panic. By the light of the night, it'll all seem all right. I'll get you a satanic mechanic. <laughs> what night, do you think? Night and day. You were right. I think that's... You were right. I think that's what they do with Bieber. I mean, he, he probably be. sounds like me. When they first get him in the studio, sure. and a little magic, yeah. Andy maybe does it, and out comes the Bieber we know and love. Okay, so that next week's Massacre Despacito. That's that's what you're going to lay down, <laughs> no, not our listeners, Josh? Summer's over, Adam. We don't have to listen to that anymore. <laughs> we say thank you to Andy, even if it meant our listeners having to suffer through that again. It was so much better with your accompaniment. If you're in New York and you need a pianist or a music director, Andy's on Twitter at Andy Colopy, C-O-L-L-O-P-Y. There is still time to enter that massacre theater, depending on when you're hearing this, of course, if you know the film. And you probably do, especially if you, you heard the music. Yeah. It, it really makes it even more obvious, Slam I think. dunk now. It should be, though, regrettably, still a movie I've never seen. Mm. I haven't had the pleasure. A blind cow review, it, it should be a blind cow review. If you know it, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 18th. So after the Labor Day weekend, I had a friend I bumped into, and he's not a big movie guy necessarily, but he is familiar with me, of course, being on the show. And he says, hey, over the weekend, I swear I was I was in another room and PBS was on or something, and I swear I heard your voice. It was in a documentary about a director. And I right away said Richard Linklater, not because I knew that I was in the documentary. In fact, I had no idea, but because... I had seen on Twitter it being promoted. It was airing over Labor Day on PBS. It was part of their American Master series, I think. It's called Dream is Destiny. So I thought it was brand new. It turns out it's not. It came out actually in 2016. And I obviously haven't watched the film. And he said, I think your voice is in the movie. So, of course, I was dying to know. And I was thinking, first, how cool would it be 
if I'm in a documentary about Linklater, one of my cinematic idols. And then I thought, what movie, what one of his masterpieces that I have raved about here on the show did they pull from? They have have so many to choose. Many times. So whether it's the Before Trilogy or Dazed and Confused, Boyhood, all to me masterpieces, I couldn't wait to find out if I truly was in it, which... Which nugget, which, which brilliant insight yeah. they, they culled from my commentary. Little, little piece of wisdom. <laughs> exactly, to put in this film. So I went to the PBS website, and we will link to it in the show notes. And about the one hour five mark, I do discover that I'm in the film. And not just me, but one Sam Van Hallgren. Mm-hmm. Back when he was just the host of Film Spotting, not the producer, I think it might have even been before the van. In fact, it it absolutely was before the van. And I was just horrified, Josh, to find that where they decided to use us was in a montage. They're setting up Boyhood and its success. And Kent Jones, the critic who's actually been here on the show and film author, delivers a soundbite where he says, you know, this is just kind of at a time in his career where his films weren't resonating with critics or audiences. And then we hear this. And Entertainment Weekly finds it a swell, fair ball remake. Doesn't really take enough chances. And it's almost like he's willing to be boring. I didn't um, care enough about what the characters were after. Uh, Far too simple and too detached to be art. And doesn't seem the most obvious fit for someone like Linklater. The direction is all over the place. There's some really messy scenes. What do you think? I say skip it. So that's me and mainly Sam destroying. Sure, look at you already already trying to pass the blame. Hey. It's credit Richard, to Sam. It wasn't mostly Adam. It's credit to Sam that they thought he had a more effective bit of commentary. They played more of it than me. Point being, though, they went back to The Bad News Bears, a review from 2006, probably his worst film. He'd even tell you that. We were in the montage of how he's not connecting with critics or audiences. That's the part where I got to be linked forever with one of my favorite directors. So you sent me this and didn't give me any context. Nope, just said, go hear it. And I will admit my heart broke a little for Thanks. you when I heard that's what happened. I appreciate it. If you do want to seek out Dream is Destiny, and I encourage you to do so, as I said, it's playing now at PBS's website, and we will link to it in the notes for this show over at filmspotting.net. We do have another plug. You have mentioned this a few times on the show, but now it's approaching. You're going to be in North Carolina for a film fest. Making yeah, an Foot appearance. Candle, Foot Candle Film Festival, which we've mentioned in previous years. They invited me to come part of the promotion I'm trying to do for the book, Movies Are Prayers. I'm going to be giving a little bit of a talk at their closing night ceremony. So that's on September 24. The festival itself, if you live in the area, is September 22 to 24 in Hickory, North Carolina. So definitely check that out. And if you're able to be around on the closing day, I'll be there too. Look for me. Say hi. Before that, well, I have to ask first. What's the what's the pizza ranch situation in North Carolina? You tell. You've me. already been to the website, I'm sure. I, don't don't you have like a savings card? I'll look pizza it up. Ranch savings I'll look card it up that, while you plug you. some other speaking event. Please do because that's. I don't what know how you I have time for the show. Really want to do is go to a pizza ranch in North Carolina. I know you do. Maybe if I'm lucky, the ceremony is in a pizza ranch. No, I know it's not actually. Much nicer venue. Next week, I'm also going to be a little bit closer to home here in suburban Palos Heights, just outside Chicago, at my alma mater, Trinity Christian College. Go Trolls, Adam. Go Trolls. <laughs> You're kidding me. No, no. Look You're it up. You're kidding me. We, we just updated the troll. Brand new look. I love it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's way too perfect and appropriate. Troll Nation, 
<laughs> of course you were a troll. That's where I'm going to be next week, September 20. That's a Wednesday night. Part of their Worldview series, and I will be showing scenes from Do the Right Thing. Okay. Where we're going to talk about the movie operating, again, drawn from the book, as a prayer of righteous anger, which maybe first comes to mind, but also look at how it surprisingly functions as a prayer of reconciliation, too. So something of a talk, Q&A, we'll be looking at scenes, like I said, that's free, open to all, just outside of Chicago at Trinity Christian College. So we'll link to these events in the show notes, too. Or if you follow me, Larson on Film, on social media, I've been putting stuff out there as well. So busy How? week next week. Yeah. I will still be doing the show. Okay. Don't worry. I'm not like you, where I'm going to skip part uh-huh. of it. I'll be here for okay. the whole thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> Here's what I want to know. When you were at Trinity, how much righteous anger did the students exhibit about being trolls? Oh, we, Because they, we should have, they should have had trolls. a lot. You should see how much publicity uh-huh. we get for having the mascot of a troll. Yeah, trolls are all about publicity, so that makes sense. <laughs> Let's get to... A note about our new Argentine Cinema Marathon. If you are a subscriber to Film Spotting via Apple Podcasts or some other feed, it's already there. We made it available earlier this week, our conversation about the fourth and the penultimate film in our new Argentine Cinema Marathon. It is Lucretia Martel's The Headless Woman from 2008. You can visit our website, click on Marathons to see which platforms Headless Woman is available from. Our partner for this marathon, Josh, remains Mubi. Mubi, of course, is the home for cult classic and independent films from around the world. Everyday Mubi's experts introduce you to a film they love, and you have a whole month to watch it. So there's always 30 extraordinary films for you to enjoy. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com slash Film Spotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash Film Spotting to redeem now. Yeah, and Josh, you were saying just last week or the week before that you needed to bone up on your John Carpenter. You needed to That's be right. exposed to more of his films and revisit some of the ones that you're completely wrong about. Well, Mubi has John Carpenter. I, I put it that way. Well, check the audio if you must. They have a John Carpenter 80s special going on. The writer, actor, composer, producer, and director, he's pretty much done it all, and they're presenting a double bill of 80s classics from the cult genre master, named by IndieWire as the most underrated filmmaker of our time. That seems accurate in your case, Josh. They've got The Fog from 1980 that was made available September 9th, and Escape from New York. Oh, one of my favorites from the 80s, 1981, to be exact. That one just became available September 10th. One of the all-time great action movie performances, Snake Plissken, Kurt Russell. And that's one I have not seen. Really? Yep. Okay. Well, don't see it because it's one of those movies I just prefer to not know how you feel about it. There's a lot. Can we of just do that? Adam. Can we just do that so so we can continue the show in peace and harmony? No, I'm going to check it out, and okay. I'll let you know. I'll text you immediately. Fine. They have another movie showing this week, Josh Songs from the North from 2014. This is from South Korea-born American filmmaker Soon Mi Yu, and it's set in the closed world of North Korea. Movie says it captures the gulf between everyday people and official rhetoric. It also won Best First Feature at Locarno 2014. Of course, they do still have their new Argentine cinema series in conjunction with our marathon going on now over at movie.com. And this movie is no longer available. Again, you've got 30 days, so this one fell away, unfortunately, Josh. But we love when we hear from film spotting listeners who have sought out some of these films. They're playing along with the marathon. They heard us gush about the first movie in the marathon, only available on movie and really hard to get 
really hard to see this film, Extraordinary Stories, and Mubi had it available. We kind of built the marathon around it, and we heard from Matt Hick on Twitter who said, thanks for the tip off film spotting. Extraordinary Stories is an extraordinary film, beautiful storytelling with real heart. We've seen several comments along those lines, both via email and social, so that's very rewarding for us. Thank you to everyone who is participating or even just watching one or two of the films in this marathon. Up next for us, the final film, 2014's Oscar-nominated Wild Tales from Damian Sifran. He is a different category of director maybe than the others we've featured in this marathon to give you some idea of how different. Turns out his next film, I knew this film was being made. I had no idea that someone from our Argentinian cinema marathon was directing the movie The Six Billion Dollar Man with Mark Wahlberg. Well, that sounds terrible. (laughs) Yeah, it kind of does, doesn't it? (laughs) But maybe... Maybe we'll Maybe see we'll something in Seafron and then we'll be excited. We'll feel differently after we watch Wild Tales, there I'm you sure. Go. It's hard to imagine, safe to say, Lucretia Martel or Mariano Ginas taking on a Hollywood reboot, but he's going for it. For lineup and viewing options, go to filmspotting.net slash marathons. I saw death. And I saw a new life. There's something more, Grandfather. Something I'm to do. I know it. I just didn't see what it was. There he is, Noah Russell Crowe from Darren Aronofsky's 2014 Old Testament epic. A couple weeks back, we asked you to name your favorite of Aronofsky's six feature films. Josh, I can't do it anymore. It's off the table, so you got to jump in. Mother is his seventh film. So were we in the military all of a sudden? Mm -hmm. Mother was in the military. In chronological order, Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, The Wrestler, Black Swan, or is it Noah? Josh, what do listeners say? Noah, Adam, sorry, last place. I'm bummed. 2%, but that means you have some friends. Pi, this is a surprise, only 7% of the vote. I thought there was more affection for that movie. The Fountain, this hurts me a little bit, only 11% of the vote. The Wrestler, 21%. Black Swan, 28%, but winning the poll. Requiem for a Dream with 31% of the vote. So very close. I finally to the called there. one. I you finally call called a poll question. I knew Requiem for a Dream would win, though it was very close. Amy in Germantown, there she is again, our beloved theater director. She says, I voted Requiem, although it is the one film on the list. I am positive. I will never watch again. There is a reason. Fair enough. As longtime listeners know, as listeners who have recently been going through the Film Spotting archive know, we did call it a one-timer, Sam and me, on a very early top five. And it's true. I still have not revisited that film from the year 2000. We also heard from Chris Massaman at Massa from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I'm voting for Requiem partially because of how good it is, but also, and I know this will sound odd, because of the nostalgia factor. I first saw Requiem in college when I was just starting to take movies seriously, and I remember being blown away by everything about it. Yes, it was sad and bleak and brutal, but it was also full of powerful performances and the kind of filmmaking bravado I was just learning to recognize and appreciate. Here was a filmmaker who was trying to tell the story using every tool at his disposal, who was trying to wed narrative and technique in an innovative way, and I found the whole thing intoxicating. Yes, it's depressing, but in terms of gutsy, edge-of-your-seat, fearless filmmaking— I don't think anything else Aronofsky has made comes close. Can't really argue with anything there. Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York. Aronofsky's films are about dedication, 
to a job, a lifestyle, addiction, or a calling. Black Swan allows the audience to experience the physical, emotional, and psychological trauma that Nina Sayers endures in her dedication to and pursuit of a role that may be beyond her reach. Aronofsky's camera doesn't shy away as he allows us to experience the body contortions, psychological breaks, and harsh birth of Nina into the Black Swan. Production design and audio design excel here as they truly enhance the visceral experience of the transformation. This is Aronofsky's high watermark for sure. Brady Larson went in a different direction. It feels almost counterintuitive for a director this given to flashy flourishes and showy editing, but I really have to go with a relatively spare The Wrestler. It's still got a lot of visually and orally commanding moments, walking into his humdrum job with yesteryear's crowd roaring in his ears, that magnificent ending. But it's also Aronofsky at his most restrained, stepping back just enough to let one of the best performances of the 21st century take the spotlight. The result is one of the most electrically charged, small, austere character studies of all time. I think that's fair. It's his most restrained film. Corey Kraft in Birmingham, Alabama. I voted for The Fountain. There it is, Josh. One of my favorite films and one of the few science fiction films of the 21st century that can fairly be called both a visionary epic and heartbreakingly intimate. It was my favorite film of 2006, and I'll just keep standing here waiting for everyone else to finally catch on. Thank you, Corey. Dan Buckler in Milwaukee wants us to remember that. In only one of these does Russell Crowe throw a fireball. Thank you, Dan. Though I actually voted for Requiem. So there you go. Thank you, everyone who participated in that poll question and for your insightful comments. I can't wait for the comments to our current poll, Josh. We are looking ahead to American Made, which comes out at the end of this month. It's the true story of pilot Barry Seal, played in the movie by Tom Cruise, who went to work for the CIA in the 1980s and transported contraband for the CIA and the Medellin Cartel. It's directed by Doug Lyman, who, as we know, made Go and Swingers, and he directed Cruz in Edge of Tomorrow. Very good film. A very good movie. And if IMDb is correct, though, I couldn't 100% confirm with a quick Google search that both Cruz and Emily Blunt are on board. There is a sequel in the works. It's in pre-production, according to IMDb, and they are calling it properly Live, Die, Repeat, and repeat. They're going back to the original. They're playing off the original title and what it definitely should have been called instead of Edge of Tomorrow. Lyman also made one of my favorites, The Bourne Identity. So we think between Cruz and Lyman and really just looking at the roster of what's coming out that weekend, American Made is the movie we are most invested in. And we want to know how you feel about Cruise. We've given you one or two Tom Cruise-related poll questions over the years, but we've never just really asked you to weigh in on how you feel about him as an actor. He's been headlining high-profile movies for three and a half decades now, Josh, which, wow, I wish I hadn't said that out loud because it makes me feel really, really no old. Kidding. We're going back to 83's Risky Business, and since, there's hardly been a year when he hasn't been in one of the top-grossing movies of the year. Even something like The Mummy from this year made $80 million at the box office. So whether you think you like him or not as an actor, he's been consistent and consistently successful for such a long time that we can at least wonder if we really haven't given him the credit he deserves. Our question then this week, Josh. When did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? And we're going to offer time frames yes. for this, specific ones. So 1987 or earlier. So, for example, Risky Business, Top Gun, Color of Money. You were already on Basically, board. Basically, yeah, pretty much from the start you were on board. Or did you come around to him 1997 or earlier? So this was born on the 4th of July era, A Few Good Men, and the first Mission Impossible movie, as well as Jerry Maguire. 2007 or earlier is another option, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut, Minority Report, and Michael Mann's Collateral all around that time. Or 
has it happened just recently, 2017 or earlier, Tropic Thunder, Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, and Rogue Nation, or the aforementioned Edge of Tomorrow. And then one more option here for the people who just still can't get on board, hasn't happened yet. So my first reaction when I saw these options, when Sam threw this out there, is how are we still taking Tom Cruise for granted? Look at the titles, and we left out Rain Man. We've left out a lot of other good movies, a couple stinkers in there, but we've left out a lot of good movies. Of all those titles, there are only two that I'm even mixed on, and I'm in the minority on Minority Report and Collateral. I need to see both again. I'm sure I would appreciate them more if I gave them another go. All those other films I have some degree of affection for from good to really good to great. And I have dwelled on this question, Josh, for way too long. I'm not sure I have a concise answer to the question. I don't know where I'm going. We'll see if we can navigate the waters here of Tom Cruise. How did you come out? Well, it's tricky because, you know, I was in my early teens around 1987. So maybe not really looking at films the way I did in the 90s and later. Yes, I'm going to say 1997. Okay. And and really, it's all for me about Jerry Maguire. That's where this impression I had of Cruise from stuff like Top Gun and Risky Business started to open up to something a little bit bigger. And it was Jerry Maguire particularly that did that, even more so than A Few Good Men, which still seemed to be in the vein of the others. Now, Born on the Fourth of July from that era, I'll admit I didn't see till later. So putting that mm-hmm. into consideration now and how good he is there – I think 1997 is when I would have gotten on board. Well, it's tough because my first instinct was to say, honestly, that it hasn't happened yet. Not because I haven't enjoyed, as I said, so many of these movies and these performances. But as I think about it, I still wonder if I take him for granted somehow on screen. I don't give him the proper credit. So I thought that. I ruled it out. I went to 2007 or earlier because I realized that Magnolia and Eyes Wide Shut were both game changers for me. Those were films that I adored and felt like I was seeing a side of Cruise I had never seen before. Yes, he'd done other serious performances, but there's a very different Cruise on screen, not that heroic performer that he'd been in most of these other films. So I almost went there, and then I tried for a second to convince myself that it's really 1987 or earlier because I was on board with Risky Business, saw these films at a young age, loved them, Top Gun, The Color of Money, actually didn't see until I was in college in the 90s, but loved it. So I considered going there. Here's where I came out, boringly. I'm with you. And maybe it's a bad answer because we can attribute it more to where we were in terms of our age and in terms of appreciating cinema. In 1997, this was kind of right in the wheelhouse of us really becoming cinephiles or on the path to becoming cinephiles. But I did finally pinpoint 1997, and it was because of the movie Rain Man, which I've always thought is a fine movie. It was really a piece of writing about the movie. I've mentioned it on the show before, but maybe, who knows, it could have been eight years ago. William Goldman in Premier Magazine wrote his Who Should Win the Oscars? The year Rain Man came out. I think it was 89. Oscars were 90. right. Okay, so right after that 87 period, we're giving you early stages of that 1997 or earlier. And like everyone else in the world, I thought Dustin Hoffman's performance was the thing we should all be going crazy about because Mm -hmm. he was doing something that seemed really hard. And I think his performance is really good. I don't think he's overacting or that we should suggests that it's been overrated, but what William Goldman argued in that article is that the real heart of that movie and the real heavy lifting is actually being done by the actor who hasn't settled on those kind of behavioral tics Mm -hmm. that he can go to to portray 
the character that Hoffman is. Now, I do think it's deeper than that, but I don't think he's wrong as I rewatch Rain Man over the years that Cruz's performance is really the core of that film. And so it was reading someone as learned and astute as William Goldman who opened my eyes to Tom Cruise as a truly good actor. That was back in 89. Yeah, that's that's absolutely true. And for Cruz, yeah, I guess that really was his character story, mm-hmm. Rain Man. And so for him to be able to carry that load and pull it off as well as he did, certainly he deserved a lot of attention then. And maybe we're belated in giving it to him now. Maybe we are. We hope that you devote some time and energy to this question, not as much as I did or we just did. We can't wait to hear from you, though. And hear your comments. If you leave a comment after you vote at filmspotting.net, please do let us know where you're listening from. I have seen cinema that is uh, very formalist, very modern, and I think they're trying to create alienation, mm-hmm. and I can appreciate that. Sure, but it wasn't my in- intention. You know, this was really trying to marry a, a kind of form that moves me and that I feel is important to cinema with a kind of humanity that moves me and I feel is important to cinema. That's the director, Kogonada, doing a pretty good job describing the subtle power of his new film, his debut feature, Columbus. We talked about it a little bit on last week's show, reviewed it very favorably. It is a contender for our golden brick at the end of the year, and it's a film set in Columbus, Indiana, a mecca of modernist architecture. Very formal, very deliberately shot, gorgeous film, but it does have a lot of warmth thanks to a great pair of performances, I think truly great performances from John Cho and Haley Lou Richardson. And I had a chance to sit down with Koganada, where we talked about modernism and a whole lot of things. He's a wonderful guy, very thoughtful, philosophical about his film and art in general. I think listeners will really enjoy the talk, which we will share on next week's show. As a little tease, we wanted to give to you now his responses to our rapid-fire Q&A. We call it the Film Spotting Five. It always starts with a simple question. What's the last film you saw in the theater? I think when I was in New York, I think this might have been the last I saw... I think right after my screening or one of my screens, I ran over and caught Ghost Story and then Dunkirk. Mm. You know, I, I, I saw the um, IMAX version. Of yeah. That. yeah. And? Yeah. You know, I'm still processing. I, I mean, again, th- both of those have stayed with mm-hmm. me. And I, yeah, I have positive response to sure. them. And I love that they both exist and they've got wide distribution. It, you know, that's amazing to me because they're unconventional. They're yes. challenging films. Yes, they are. And, uh, it's, it's great. Yeah, you know, it's and great. in some way, bizarrely similar, at least I felt they were, maybe it was because I saw them one right after another, but mm-hmm. in terms of being about time That's and, right. and the way they, they use time and how it unfolds cinematically. Yeah, yeah, and, and they have tricky timelines. Yes, and yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, interesting. What about a movie you revisited recently, something you'd seen before and decided mm-hmm. to give it another go? What did I, well, you know, I saw, I did this thing for Criterion, so I saw L'Argent again, but on my own, you know, I saw Singing in the Rain with my boys because they've been getting into musicals. And I said, oh, well, we, we need to see Singing in the Rain. And that was great. They really responded to that. Double Life of uh, Veronique, mm-hmm. which was great uh, again. And, um, oh, you know, Irma Vep. I watched Irma Vep. I, I, I can revisit that every, every You're a big Asayas fan. Yeah, yeah, I am. Uh, you know, I don't love everything, but, man, I've, I love Irma Vep, and I've loved his Clouds of Sils Maria. I mean, mm-hmm. that. Yeah, they're right up there. Mm-hmm. What about a movie you consider underrated? Mm. Wow, underrated. Most um, of the world, most of your cinephile friends don't appreciate it as much as you. You know, like the cinema of Nicole Holofcener. I think 
here is someone who has a really unique voice and I don't know, maybe her aesthetic, like a visual style is not so definitive. Although, you know, probably if we attended to it, we could see that. But just her voice, I think, is so distinct. You know, it's like Noel Baumbach. She's like equivalent to Noel Baumbach and offering a particular way of seeing the world. In fact, now that I think about it, what was uh, Noah Baumbach's kicking and screaming? Mm -hmm. And then she did like walking and talking and lovely and amazing. Yes. Those should be trilogies. But it's amazing to me because I think she's constantly offering a really distinct kind of world, kind of cinema. But, you know, she's not in the conversation of, of auteurs. So, yeah, Nicole Hollister. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. <laughs> what about just a random movie you love? Mm. You know what? Okay. Moulin Rouge has, uh, I, when I think of random, because I think at the time, I kind of had a film theory going in my head. And on paper, Moulin Rouge would have like defied everything that I thought was important and meaningful. <laughs> and... I remember it being a point of like trying to be honest with how I was being moved by that. And it stayed with me. It still stays with me every time I see it because I, you know, it breaks me. I feel moved by it. I'm drawn to it. it it's in my bones, but I could never figure out like, how can he be making all these choices? Yeah. You know, like Yee Yee makes sense. You know, that's a, like, but there was something about Moulin Rouge that um, I'm still figuring out. Like, sure. why do I so, you know, but I respond to it every time. Um, and it maybe even feels random, but I, but to be honest, you know, yeah. I'm really, really moved by it. Last question, your favorite book about the movies or about movie making? Oh, wow. I, you know, there are, and maybe this will be telling <laughs> the kind of books that uh, certainly, and again, these may even be books that I disagree with or probably don't fully disagree with, but I have conversations with, but I mean, immediately I think like Transcendental Style and Film by Paul Schrader, mm -hmm. and really, you know, someone who's saying like forms matter at some deep, deep level, spiritual level for him. Um, Bazan, you know, what is cinema? Tarkovsky's Sculpting in Time. Yeah, you know, I like Bordwell's Ozu and the Poetics of Cinema. I'm sorry. I, no, I, yeah. I appreciate uh, the more answers. The better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are a lot of books. You know, I like Truffaut's. There's this great collection of his correspondences. He was this incredible letter writer, and they're amazing. I mean, and they give you a sense of French cinema. They give you a sense of a cinephile who's working through cinema. Hmm. And he's uh, just writing to... A variety yeah, of different a people. Variety, everyone. It includes uh, his his letters to Godard, and yeah, they're amazing. And he is such an incredible writer, even in his letters. And you know, for for that matter, he has a book called "Films Are My Life" or something like that, which he has this incredible introduction. I, I love the writings of Truffaut as a film critic and a film writer and a thinker and a, and a, yeah, those come to my mind. Yeah. That's director Koganata answering the film Spotting Five. His new film, Columbus, is currently playing in limited release, including here in Chicago at The Music Box. My full conversation with the director comes next week. If you want to hear other film Spotting Five responses from Kumail Nanjiani of The Big Sick, Anna Lily Amarpour, Trey Edward Schultz, and more, go to filmspotting.net slash FS5. Some responses there, Josh. I know you appreciate at least one anyway. The random movie he loves, Moulin Rouge. See? Though you can't say it that way, because like the film from Darren Aronofsky, I'm not going to say it. it has an exclamation point at the end of it. So Does don't it? you have to yell it? I think you have to yell Moulin Rouge. Yeah, well, we're not going to do that now. So Koganada, <laughs> wonderful filmmaker, also has very good taste. 
apparently he does. I knew you would enjoy that. And I love the mention of Paul Schrader's transcendental style in film. The first book he mentioned in terms of favorite books on movies and movie making, that's a book I referenced certainly in one of my classes where we talked about Ozu, a beloved filmmaker of Koganada's, and mentioning underrated the cinema of Nicole Holofcener. I'm one of those people who has rated it pretty lowly. Up until recently, I loved Enough Said, starring Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini, so I'm coming around on Hall of Center. Yeah, he's right there too. I've been on board with her stuff from the beginning. So we were happy to have that chat with him. And as I said, we'll share the full conversation on next week's show. If you want to go through the archives and check out any of our past interviews here on the show, filmspotting.net slash interviews. So Darren Aronofsky's films, they've shown us plenty of horrible things that we'd rather forget. What are the moments we want to remember? The Film Spotting Top 5 is next. Stay with us. In addition to our sponsors this week, we did want to take a quick moment to acknowledge all of our wonderful donors, the lifeblood of the show here on Film Spotting. We got a new Buck a Show donation that came our way from Robert in Wheeling, Illinois. And you know, Josh, we've got monthly subscribers to the show. We also have listeners who aren't subscribers, but at least once a year, they check in with a donation. One of those guys is Scott in Western Kansas, who sent us a check in the mail along with a handwritten note. I really enjoyed the recent Agnes Varda marathon, a real blind spot for me. Your top five lists about movies about grief, religious experiences at the movies, and political resistance movies were all thought-provoking. Well done. Thank you, Scott. The best moment, though, had to be your cringeworthy, awkward reading of the We Vibe product in episode 622. <laughs> that was a classic. No Massacre Theater performance compared to that. Congratulations to Josh for the publication of his book. Thanks for all your insights and great discussions, Scott from Western Kansas. What happened to We Vibe? I don't know. I don't know. I guess I guess our reads were too funny, perhaps, Josh. And, <laughs> Maybe we didn't and that do doesn't it sell the product. <laughs> but Scott is a wonderful supporter of the show, a platinum level donation that came our way. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Robert. Thank you to everyone who supports the show. And of course, there is a no cost way you can help us out. Rate or review us at Apple Podcasts. Every five star rating, every review really does help us reach new listeners. Thank you to AgriJag22, Jeremy Limos, Mitt Chiapet, Cole Shannon16, Sikamaribrun, <laughs> wow, and Cofaxinator, all for taking the time recently to post a review. The Mitt Chia Pet, always my favorite Chia Pet. 913, personal note. When I was a little kid, my mother told me not to stare into the sun. 
so once when I was six, I did. The doctors didn't know if my eyes would ever heal. I was terrified, alone in that darkness. Slowly, daylight crept in through the bandages, and I could see. But something else had changed inside me. That day I had my first headache. It's top five time this week. The top five Darren Aronofsky scenes. That clip from Pi, Darren Aronofsky's debut film. Some common themes there that we will see pop up again and again in his films. Maybe in some of our choices here on our respective top five list. Josh, psychological horror, explicit bodily harm. We've got the effective use of sound design. There are some other recurring motifs and themes that I do think we will get to. So best to just leave it there with Pi, as we're going to hear a little bit more of it here in a moment. Now, this list, I think we both feel a little bit guilty, and maybe that makes sense for Aronofsky's films, because to really do this properly, I think we would have probably rewatched all of his films again, except yes. maybe <laughs> Noah and Black Swan, the two most recent. And could we force ourselves to That's watch the Requiem thing. I still, a dream again? I still really haven't decided if I truly do think I'll ever see that movie again. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's been a long time since I've seen most of these and said on last week's show I really wanted to revisit Black Swan again because that's the one I'm mixed on and, and feel like I would like more the second time. Just didn't get around to it. Mm -hmm. But in looking at what scenes were available online, at least came up with a path forward. Yeah. And I'm happy with where I landed. I think these represent well what is distinctive about his cinema. And then a couple of choices here that are maybe not what first comes to mind, but I don't want us to forget, mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Okay. Like my first instinct was to go with his wildest scenes because yeah. those are what come to mind, mm -hmm. those extreme cinematic flourishes. But when I did scan his filmography, I was reminded that there's there's more to it than that. So I wanted to include a couple great moments that aren't necessarily existentially unnerving, you know? Okay. Even though well. that's where... <laughs> I'm mostly going to be. <laughs> I'm going to focus heavy on the existentially unnerving and the extreme cinematic flourishes. Not all of them, but I will pick up the slack there for you, Josh, as we get to your number five Aronofsky scene. So let's start with his unnerving, yes, debut from 1998, the black and white pie about an unstable mathematician played by Sean Goulette, who we heard there coming into this segment. He thinks he might have uncovered a numerical code that's a communication from God. So Max, this mathematician, he suffers from delusions. And one of these takes place in the subway where he sees what looks like brain tissue on the steps. Things get very eraser head when he takes a pen and pokes at the brain. It elicits this bizarre chord on the soundtrack that's it's almost as if an electric piano had been had been thrown onto the train tracks and then run over by a subway train. This happens each time. Why does he keep doing it? He keeps poking at the brain. There's oh, also yeah. this weird background throbbing going on mm -hmm. in that scene. And in fact, the sound design is something Alaric Khan, listener, noted on my Larson on Film Facebook page when he suggested this scene for our list. I love the scenes in Pi on the subway platform, the sounds in that sequence, the unease. Love it. He's a master of unease. Mm -hmm. 
I think Alaric has a nice working definition there for Aronofsky, a master of unknees. Uh, it sounds like your list is heavy on that, and I will have a few more like it as well. Okay. Well, my number five is from Pi as well. But before I get there, a little bit of a setup to explain how I approached my list. Last week, I think it was on the show where Noah came up, or two weeks ago when we were sharing this poll question, I said that watching Noah finally catching up with that film, crystallized something for me about Aronofsky's work. I did caution that it wouldn't be right to call it a revelation because I was sure it wasn't a terribly original thought. Many others have almost certainly pointed out this thread running through his work. Turns out, Josh, I'm one of those people. (laughs) I went back and looked at my notes for our review of Black Swan here on the show, and I went into some detail about how this is a perfect film for Aronofsky. If you look at Pi, Requiem for a Dream, The Fountain, The Wrestler, they're all movies that deal in some way with madness and self-destruction. And usually they chronicle the obsession that leads to that madness and self-destruction. And I talked about Nina, the black swan character there. First, the white swan character. You've got this battle this conflict inside her between the id and the ego. She's this pure, innocent dancer with a moral conscience. And then when that part of her is put up against this black swan, this heightened id, and those forces battle, she completely unravels. And that kind of intellectual versus the emotional, psychological component does seem to run through Aronofsky's work in our poll feedback to our question about which film do our listeners think is Aronofsky's best? Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York, said that all his films are about dedication. That's a word for it, sure, but I'm specifically interested in that point where the dedication or the obsession Aronofsky's characters exhibit crosses into madness. So the real epiphany I had watching Noah was a micro one, not a macro one. I didn't really put together that his films are all about madness. I knew that already. I put together that Noah this big-budget studio film, by far his most mainstream movie, in theory anyway, is very much a Darren Aronofsky film. We'll get to more on Noah in a little bit. So that was the theme I wanted to explore with my choices. And as I said, I do have a scene from Pi at number five. I'm calling it I Only Have Eyes for You. Max Cohn, the character you described, is all alone on a subway car, except for an older man across from him. And Max is looking at stock information in the newspaper. He's doodling formulas and other numbers. And he's thinking about his math mentor, Saul, who has had a stroke and is now an invalid, and who warns him to stop when he comes across that 216-digit number that it turns out Saul himself once encountered. And the voice over here just lays out so perfectly the mindset of the obsessed Aronofsky character, the philosophy that leads to madness. Saul died a little when he stopped research on Pi. It wasn't just the stroke. He stopped caring. How could he stop when he was so close to seeing Pi for what it really is? How could you stop believing that there is a pattern, an ordered shape behind those numbers when you were so close? So I love those questions. How could he stop? How could you stop? Max just can't figure that out. And I think, Josh, you can ask those questions and leave the end of them blank and fill it in with the elements from other Aronofsky films, whether it's how could you stop that wrestling match? How could you stop that ballet performance? How could you stop doing what God has asked of you? Every one of Aronofsky's films has a way to finish those questions. And then on top of it, it's this character who seems maybe kind of like he's a businessman, who knows, kind of anonymous, but he's singing and he's not really there. 
Max discovers. He is imagining him on the subway car. It's not the first sign of Max kind of losing his mind, as I remember, Pi, but it is an early one. And on top of that, you've got the cheekiness of the song. The song choice there, Josh, I Only Have Eyes For You. The Flamingos originally and Sinatra was famous for it. It's this romantic ballad about a man in love who is also arguably crazy. It's the crooner doo-wop version of Every Breath You Take. If you look at the lyrics for the song, Are the Stars Out Tonight? I don't know if it's cloudy or bright. For I only have eyes for you, dear. I don't mind if we're in. The speaker of that song could be Max Cohn with his numbers. Yeah, absolutely. And part of the horror of Aronofsky's films is watching characters descend into that madness, right? Yep. Once they cross that That's threshold, it. there's always going to be a ways to go yet while they go down. So true. And we watch. My number four, I'm calling the Conquistador's Commission, and it does come from the fountain. It turned out it was hard to pick a single scene from the fountain as much as I, I do love it because so much of the effect of this movie is the way it slips back and forth among these three different time periods. We have the 1500s, we have the turn of this century, and then the year 2500. Now, Hugh Jackman and Rachel Weiss play variations on a couple in each time frame. The Fountain is one of those musical composition films where the movement of the entire piece Working together really counts more than individual moments. And, of course, not surprisingly, the movie is anchored by a wonderful Clint Mansell score. Revisiting some of the scenes, though, I was struck by the directness and the simplicity of this early one, The Conquistador's Commission, which is set in the 16th century. Here, Vice appears as the Queen of Spain, and she sends Jackman's Conquistador off to the New World in search of the Tree of Life. Will you deliver Spain from bondage? Upon my honor and my life. Then you shall take this ring to remind you of your promise. You shall wear it when you find Eden. And when you return, I shall be your Eve. Together we will live forever. This exchange is extremely close. It's a shot reverse shot and both actors are looking directly into the camera for it. Vice is lit in the high contrast style of much of the film and then Jackman is a little bit more in shadow. So this really adds to the intensity of the scene though Vice is, you know, someone with the stare that she has as mm-hmm. an actress that she can deliver so well. She really needs no help with the intensity department, but this whole moment is heightened and matches the heightened language that she uses where she references Eden and Eve. I think what happens here then is this quest gets elevated beyond this immediate temporal purpose and the movie mixes in these romantic and spiritual illusions and and that's what the fountain really is mostly interested in. So here's one of those simpler moments, but a really arresting one from the fountain. A movie I really liked when we reviewed it here on the show, but maybe the movie I most needed to revisit to feel like I could wrap my head around it and come up with a scene for this list. I'm glad it made yours as I knew it would. My number four is from Black Swan, and it's a scene 
that certainly is not one of those extreme cinematic flourishes. And that's why I actually really like it on this list, though it is certainly a visual moment. That's what's so arresting about it. It's the rehearsal hallucination that Natalie Portman's Nina Sayers has. She is all alone in the studio, and she is doing the swan dance in the mirror. She's pirouetting, arms up and down, and her image is being reflected back to her. We see both Nina in the foreground and the mirror in the background. As she pirouettes, the doppelganger in the mirror stops turning just before Nina does. And Nina seems to notice something's wrong, but I love what Aronofsky does. He doesn't just have her stop immediately and they both kind of freeze in that moment where something is off. They actually, right after Nina stops and she catches that little flicker of movement from the doppelganger, they pick up again perfectly in sync for a moment and then they stop. So you almost wonder for a second, how how did they pull that off? It, it really does seem like it's Portman and yet, Something's eerie about it. Something's creepy about it. It should be her reflection, and yet it obviously isn't because it's moving separately from her. And then we get a cut, and we see her back up against the mirror, and she's starting to get scared. Maybe she hears something, and she starts to turn as if she might be aware of what's behind her, and she never gets fully around. But we see just before the lights go out that that doppelganger does look directly at her. So moving completely on its own, we see this other version of Nina. So there's no real reliance on sound in this sequence. There's nothing in terms of the editing that's really crazy or heightens the tension. It's just the fact that the camera showcases slight differentiation in movement that makes it so creepy. And I think, Josh, too, that the other effect of the scene is one where we as viewers recognize the first time when Nina notices the swan move differently from her, that that's her state of mind. It's saying something about her psychological state in that moment. And then when we see the dancer in the mirror do something different than Nina and Nina doesn't see it, then it's back on us as viewers. And you're wondering, okay, wait, are we losing our minds too? So it's, again, a very subtle kind of visual flourish, but one of those moments I've always remembered from Black Swan. Yeah, yeah, that that's a great moment there. Let's stick with the Black Swan because I have a scene from it for my number three. It's the transformation scene, the big scene. I couldn't entirely go off the deep end with Black Swan when it first came out. But this I certainly remember and was pretty much in awe of when I saw it the first time. It's when Nina, here she's finally embraced her dark side and unleashes herself on stage as the Black Swan of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. The moment begins with her confident rush towards the camera, and we notice that her eyes are red and her pupils are hugely Mm -hmm. dilated. Camera's very active here, floating in and out and up and down with her. The whole sequence is staged almost like a boxing scene. You know, when when people describe the best boxing movies as being balletic, well, here you're getting a ballet movie being like one of those best boxing movies in a way. And there's this, you mentioned the subdued sound in the scene you picked. Here there's this really insidious touch of Nina lifting her arms up and down like yeah. the swan, and we hear the whooshing. You hear that in the hallucination scene I described, too. Oh, That's you do really that it. touch. You do okay. hear that little touch. It is more subtle, but you hear it, and you hear her feet, the, the toes tapping on the ground, okay. but that's it. Yeah. Otherwise. Here, I just love how it's this flapping wing that we get on mm-hmm. the soundtrack. Sure enough, then, when Nina spins off stage for a moment, she starts making these preening gestures and these little feathers begin to appear on her arms. She returns to the stage and her arms transform into these giant wings for the performance's climax. It's 
what I like about it is it's this brilliant mix of psychological terror, mm-hmm. which we've been getting doses of throughout, but also sort of a beautiful magical realism. So it makes that terror alluring for this brief moment and is, yeah, it's one of the reasons I've got to give Black Swan another chance. Okay. My number three Aronofsky scene comes from Requiem for a Dream. And Josh, I wonder if it made your list or if you avoided putting it on due to what I learned last week during our top five Stephen King scares was your aversion to kitchen appliances (laughs) coming to life. Feed me, Sarah. That scene from Requiem. This is the scene featuring Ellen Burstyn as Sarah Goldfarb, who is a character, we should say, who has a lot of obsessions. Diet pills and the food she isn't eating, all in the service of losing weight, which is all in the service of fitting into her red dress, which is all in the service of appearing on TV on her favorite game show, which is all in the service of, I don't know, just living mattering, trying to be somebody in the world, but also we hear from her earlier in the film, literally having something just to wake up for the next day. This is what's keeping her going. And as she's watching this game show, her fantasy world and her reality converge in terrifying fashion. The host and the crowd on TV start turning their attention to her and they're laughing at her, mocking her. Then the apartment walls open up and people come in with props, cameras, makeup, Her living room is now the set of the show. And the spotlight's on her. This should be her perfect dream come true. Everything she's ever wanted is happening, but it's this assault, including an attack from a refrigerator with Jaws. And we've talked a few times about sound and how important it is to Aronofsky's work. As she's sitting there and the mocking begins, we just kind of hear her breathing, the noise of the room not much and the sound of the tv and then that laughter really kicks in and then when the walls are torn open everything shifts orally the tv sound it cuts out the voices are reduced in the mix the effects are raised so we get a whooshing sound of the camera moving towards her the lights being replaced or being pulled down. Everything is heightened to reflect her really fragile state of mind. And that battle that's going on inside Sarah, there's this sexual romantic component where she has an attraction to the TV host and that's being mocked on display in this nightmare. Her body's being deprived of food. There are needs physically that are not being met that hasten this mental breakdown. And then we talked about it with the Black Swan, the doppelganger element. There's a redhead in a red dress all made up. To me, when I watch the scene, she's either so made up that I can't tell it's Ellen Burstyn or it's another actress playing the Pretty part. Pretty sure it is Ellen Burstyn. You do? Because yeah. honestly, Josh, I really, I watched it 10 times and yeah. it, it didn't really look like her. really exaggerated makeup. Yeah, really exaggerated, but it's clearly meant to be her doppelganger. She's seeing this version of herself that is, again, coming back to haunt her. As I said, at one point, making out with the host, but it's not this romantic, wonderful tryst that it should be. It's all part of this nightmare. We'll get to some more about the fridge attack okay. in a bit. First, though, my number two, <laughs> the Delhi Counter Entertainer, I'm calling it. This is from The Wrestler, another one of my quieter picks. You could call it maybe even delightful. Perhaps it's even cheery, this little scene. I think Aronofsky is such a strong visual filmmaker that we forget how good he is with actors, even though the Oscars don't, you know, many nominations for 
his actors. Here in The Wrestler, we have Mickey Rourke's comeback performance as a former pro wrestler desperately seeking a comeback. And maybe it's the best example of his work with actors. Randy the Ram Robinson, he has this dismal day job working the deli counter at a grocery store. And though he's mostly miserable, there's this one afternoon, this one scene that he decides to have fun with his customers. So he teases them, he's cajoling them, and he turns the serving of lunch meat into a performance and these waiting shoppers into his audience. 47. Let me get an eight-piece uh, chicken. What kind of chicken you want? I want eight pieces, two breasts. I need two big breasts. Two big breasts coming up. That's what I want, two big breasts. <laughs> big breasts, and a, something with a brain. And two wings? Yeah. yeah stay away from them pies. A lot of chicken flying out the door. There you go, honey. Have a Thank good day. You. Have a good day. <laughs> Who's next? Me. What you having? Good looking. Uh, half pound egg salad. Half a pound egg salad coming up. Here we go. Fresh. Fresh. Yeah. Fresh as monkey's breath, brother. Oh, yeah. This is the good stuff. Coming up. Down and out. Come on. It's the fourth quarter. Come on. Come on. Come on. There's 12 seconds left. Go. Down and out. Here. Both hands. Hey! Touchdown! God damn! How about them cowboys? What you having, spring chicken? This isn't just a throwaway scene, though. I think it's crucial to the building up of this character, mm-hmm. to really emphasizing that the guy is alive when he's entertaining, and this is what he's getting to do here. And the wonderful thing about the wrestlers, it, it reminded us the same thing about Rourke. So, really, one of my favorite Aronofsky films, even hmm. though it's not maybe one that would be considered a hallmark of of his style. Yeah, maybe not. And I can say going into this list, it was the one that I felt least inclined to revisit. I just wasn't dying to see it again. Maybe didn't think it would hold any mysteries for me. But after watching several scenes from it, I think I probably have not given it enough credit. And I'm going with a scene from The Wrestler for my number two as well. I did initially think, even though there are a lot of connections to a lot of the themes we've talked about, I thought maybe The Wrestler was a bit of an outlier from a madness standpoint, because there's a whole lot wrong with Randy the Ram Robinson from a personal standpoint, without a doubt. But beyond some of the self-harm and the degradation we see with almost all of Aronofsky's protagonists, he doesn't full-blown lose it the way Max and Sarah do. I think completely fractured. Now he has moments where he completely loses it, including when he quits his job there at the deli counter. But Not a cheery scene. Not a cheery scene. One scene that I considered, and I was hoping you weren't going to go here, but the hardcore match. That is a scene where he takes it too far. You have to be a little mad to put yourself through that kind of punishment. And it's that body versus the mind again, where I think Randy as a character thinks if he can mentally accept the pain, well, then his body should be able to follow and accept it as well. But it doesn't, it can only take so much. And after that match, he has a heart attack, but he does survive it. I couldn't go with that scene though, because I find it so excruciating to watch. I mean, it's one of those scenes that's right up there with the end of Requiem for a Dream for me in terms of watching a character put himself through such physical pain. Yeah, it's it's more body horror. Yeah, it is. And I, I just want to close my eyes. So what I did go with, Josh, is the Ram Jam, the ending of The Wrestler. Those final moments, that final wrestling match, and there is one shot within that sequence in particular. So if you haven't seen The Wrestler and want to see it and don't want it spoiled, now's your chance to stop listening. But there is this match and Randy at the end has a moment where he's he's clearly experiencing another heart attack and he could stop. The other wrestler gives him a chance to end with some dignity, to stop, 
to maybe save his life, but still win the match. He could just pin him. And in that moment, Randy decides, no, I'm doing my signature move. The crowd wants it. I'm going to the top buckle and I'm jumping off. I, as you know, love movies that are all about art, that deal with achieving a sort of perfection or a state of grace through art or performance. So I'm drawn to this, even if it means self-destruction, which it often does, that pursuit often does. But I also don't want to go too far glorifying that destruction. And I think that you could argue that the end of this movie does that. But as you watch Randy in that moment and you show the way Aronofsky cuts between a few different angles of him climbing up the rope and then on the rope and then finally we get that shot that ultimately I think is on the movie poster where it's kind of a low angle shot. It's pointing up at him kind of from the canvas. He's up there with his arms raised heroically and it looks like it might have been shot with a wide angle lens so that the crowd from the balcony almost seems like it's on top of him. The space there, the depth is really compressed and they're going crazy and they're chanting his name. And when he jumps off, which is, I will point out as I watch some scenes from The Black Swan, the ending that made your list, she falls, she jumps in a way mm-hmm. and self-destructs in a way just like Randy does, of course, with The Wrestler. But there is in that moment, as he does that signature move, a certain grace to it, an undeniable beauty to it. And it's touching and it's sad. And it does make me think about the question I started my list with, which is, how could I stop? How could he stop in that moment? There was no way that character that's why it it feels wrong in a way you wish he would make a different decision but at the same time you know there is no other decision for that character it's the only option so it's beautiful and it's tragic at the same time yeah and i think that's the moment where the movie merges completely with the perspective of its deranged character you know with its mad character and a lot of times aronofsky's films are shifting in and out from that Mm -hmm. like we're watching them as us And you mentioned it with the doppelganger scene. Like, when have we succumbed to the madness, too? Here, that ending, I don't see it as glorifying his decision so much as merging with the madness. That's a good way to look at it. We can experience it fully. All right. Yeah. I had the refrigerator tack (laughs) as my number one. I mean, to be honest, it is a horrifying scene, but it's more watchable than some of the other ones you could revisit from Requiem for a Dream. Let's just say that. But I think it also perfectly captures uh, what uh, I started off with from Elric's description, how he's a master of unease. This film is constant unease. I think you could just say it's it's pure horror. And Sarah's confrontation, what begins is this confrontation just with her refrigerator and expands from there, as you described, is terrifying. I do like the touch that until those jaws appear, I'm glad you mentioned those, this is just such a nondescript fridge. And the way it moves, like it just starts bumping out from the wall as if someone's kind of pushing it. You know, there's nothing supernatural about it. And that makes it somehow even creepier because it's just on the other side of reality, but not too far. Um, I do think that is Burstyn, speaking of Aronofsky actors being nominated for Oscars. She was for this. I do think that is her as the doppelganger. And what I like about that is 
she gives such a good performance amidst all of this tricky camera work. You mentioned the onset practical effects going on. Mm -hmm. I can't imagine what it was like to be an actor in the middle of all this insanity, (laughs) right? And here she's giving what I think is a dual performance when that conga line appears and uh, her doppelganger shows up with Christopher McDonald's leering host. So you combine all these things, this magnificent performance, Aronofsky's visual language, and what we get here is this potent mixture of paranoia, desire, helplessness, craving, shame, mm-hmm. fear. I mean, it's pretty much the whole experience of addiction <laughs> yeah. just delivered in these few terrifying moments. So I think Requiem for a Dream, I think it has moved up ahead of The Fountain as my favorite Aronofsky film, having revisited all of these scenes okay. uh, and just the impact that they do leave. And this is my favorite moment from that movie. Okay. Well, we're in such harmony. And now I'm going to break that harmony with my number one pick. I'm going with a scene from Noah. For number one? I am. Well, I should maybe point out that I did start this list thinking I'm going to explore this madness theme chronologically. So, of course, I'd build up to Noah. But the more I thought about it and the more I moved around a couple scenes, I realized that, no, actually, I do think it belongs at number one. And I know, because I've read your review of Noah, that you have mixed feelings about this scene. But hear me out. It's the creation of the world sequence slash what I'm calling and you'll see online referred to as we broke the world. And I did almost go with a different image, a single moment that's the one moment in your review of Noah, Josh, that wasn't totally misguided. You nailed it. This is the moment where the character Noah, Russell Crowe, is keeping his family safe inside the Ark. We've got Tubal Cain, played by Ray Winston, and his horde of vulgarians and savages not too far away who all want to get in. And it's a hellish landscape that they have constructed out there in the forest. And Crowe goes out to explore it. And there is a scene where he notices amidst all this chaos, and there are men who are basically willing to give up their their women, whether it's their daughters or their wives or whatever, just to get food. Mm-hmm. And Noah at one point sees one guy. I think, what does he do? He starts gnawing into yeah. some raw meat. Yep, yep. And then that character looks back at him and it's Noah. Mm-hmm. It's himself. So I thought about that because that's the moment for me, or it could be the moment where you see him start to descend into madness. But what I think, Josh, is it's it's the next scene that was prompted by that encounter out in the forest, which we can also chalk up as another doppelganger, right? When he sees himself out there seeing that version that frightens him. It's the black swan, the ravenous, non-pious animal version of Noah. But after that, he goes into the ark, he gets his family together, and he tells them the story that he's told them all hundreds of times, the creation of the universe tale. And why I love this sequence, Josh, yes, I do think the special effects are pretty dazzling and the creation of the universe is almost always going to be a compelling story. And it's done differently here from a technical standpoint than other versions I've seen. Probably most recently, Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. It's kind of the sped up photo technique. I don't know how to Mm -hmm. accurately describe it from a technical standpoint, but it's really striking. And for me, it's really two moments in that sequence. Aronofsky turns that telling of the tale into his version of a campfire horror story. And that is what it ultimately becomes. You've got this kind of cauldron. There's a pot between them. And Noah picks up two halves of this goblet. And there's a light emanating from it. And there's smoke coming out. It's very mysterious. And he's holding it up to his face like someone would hold a flashlight up to their face when they're telling a ghost story. But this goblet that's cracked in half, it's like a world split in two. And when he puts the top back on, it goes to pitch black. In the beginning, 
There was nothing. Nothing but the silence of an infinite darkness. But the breath of the Creator fluttered against the face of the void, whispering, Let there be light. And light was. And it was good. The first day. So you've got Noah, the character, and Aronofsky, the director, as storytellers here, using this great practical effect that's leading up to this sequence that's all digital effects. So as you just talked about, this kind of combination of onset effects and special ones, and there's nothing supernatural about that goblet, and yet it feels that way. It perfectly sets up the transition into the story of creation. But what really makes the sequence so stunning for me is how it finishes. You've got I think about a 35-second montage where it's a static shot and the two characters in the scene are silhouetted. They're all black against this purplish sky. And you've got Cain drubbing Abel with a rock. And it's the first murder. And we see a succession of men of different tribes over different generations killing each other. And it plays out like an animated flip book. Each new man moves the weapon forward a little bit. And then we get the other side. Each new man we see is falling closer and closer to the ground. And when we come out of that and he says to his family, we broke the world, man did this, that's Noah seeing that he himself is capable of having those sinful thoughts. He recognizes that he's no different than these men and nobody from his lineage is going to be any better. How can they then be the ones to return their world to its original grace, to its state in the Garden of Eden? And this is the seed of Noah's madness that does become full-blown madness by the end of the film. He's decided that mankind is going to end with him. He's going to be sure of it, no matter the cost, no matter the physical harm. He, a loving father and husband, has to inflict on those he loves. He's going to make sure that God's will, as he sees it, is done. And as I said, it's not long after this that he becomes the madman in a horror movie. Everyone's in this house together, this ark, trapped, and they're all trying to avoid him to avoid further bloodshed. So in some ways, I do see it as a culmination of everything Aronofsky is able to pull off cinematically and explore within this larger theme of madness. Yeah. And that was one of the striking elements of Noah is the way it did portray this well-known, we think, figure in a way that we don't think about him as a madman. Yeah. But, but yet those elements are in the text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, you, when you go back and read that story and separate it from childhood Bible storybook versions, you can see elements of madness there. And so certainly certainly Noah did double down on that yeah. aspect. Well, those are our top five Darren Aronofsky scenes. We'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. Any final honorable mentions, Josh? Uh, the Noah scene you brought up mm-hmm. was an honorable mention for me. The one where he sees himself, I, I like to call it facing the evil within. I think you're right in reading it that way. Uh, I did mention the bio bubble in the fountain, this spacecraft, I guess, that the year 2500 Hugh Jackman travels in. I listed it as one of my top five alien worlds on episode 643, so couldn't go back to there. And then Requiem for a Dream, a montage I did watch again that was very affecting is the fetal position finale. So this is after the most horrible section of Requiem for a Dream, the aftermath of that, where we get to see each of these main characters who have gone through the worst degradation just kind of turn over and curl up and we sit there in their sadness. Yeah, that final montage in Requiem where we see how all the characters' lives play out. It's an honorable mention for me too, even though 
just thinking about it makes me shiver a little bit. Nina's Final Dance, which made your list, Sarah Goldfarb, in Requiem for a Dream. It's a scene I referenced during my pick with the refrigerator where she's explaining to her son, played by Jared Leto, why fitting into the red dress is so important. Talk about an understated scene. It's in close-up on both of them the whole time, mainly on Ellen Burstyn. Such a great performance. And I do want to lament publicly one more time my inability to find a spot for the fountain on this list, Josh. I just didn't feel like it was as vivid in my mind. And what you said really resonated with me in terms of it being a movie that just doesn't have kind of the obvious benchmark scenes like some of these other films. But that doesn't mean there's not a lot to appreciate with that movie. At some point, I'll give it another shot. I did have one more honorable mention from The Wrestler, and I've got a little bit of help here. I don't know what happens when you get mentioned three times in one episode. Is that like the super film spotting turkey? Jim Polini in Bethpage, New York, one more time. Hello, film spotting. This is Jim Polini from Bethpage, New York, checking in with my favorite Darren Aronofsky scene. You know, we know that Aronofsky is really great for kind of unnerving and unsettling his audience, and he demonstrates that to really great effect in, you know, some of my favorites like Requiem and Pie and Black Swan. But I have to say that my all-time favorite Aronofsky scene is one that just completely turns the tables on that ability. Um, In The Wrestler, there's a really key scene where Randy explains his past to his daughter. They're out at an amusement park, and by way of confession, really, he tries to make her understand the reasons why he had really failed as a parent and abandoned his family and failed all the way through. And really, in what is an exceptionally vulnerable moment, he acknowledges and accepts his fate of really living the rest of his life alone and without solace, asking only that she accept that she had nothing to do with it and she was not complicit in his failures as a father. You never did anything wrong. I used to try to... Oh, forget about you. (laughs) I used to try to pretend that you didn't exist. But I can't. You're my girl. You're my little... You're my little girl. And now... I'm an old, broken-down piece of meat, and I'm alone. And I deserve to be all alone. I just don't want you to hate me. And here's where Aronofsky really excels. Rather than conclude this scene with a rote, you know, reconciliation moment at the end uh, of Randy's confession with the music swelling in the background, he lets the scene kind of linger quietly for a beat, and then he cuts to a a different scene where they're walking down towards a dance hall in this amusement park. The daughter invites Randy, her father, to dance, and this very simple act uh, suggests a kind of a faint hope of reconciliation that really completes the scene perfectly. You don't know where it's going to go from there, but there's a a, a hope and uh, and, a... direction towards hope and reconciliation that is very subtle, very understated, and is just not what usually Aronofsky does. And that this scene, unlike most of his other memorable moments on film, is one that I go back to often. It's, it's my favorite. Thanks, gentlemen. Keep it up. 
Thank you, Jim, for that. Thank you to every listener who responded to our Aronofsky poll, who shared some of your favorite Aronofsky scenes on our Twitter feeds or over on our Facebook pages. We do appreciate all the feedback and all the guidance we get with these lists. That's our show at filmspotting.net. You can find 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. While you're there, go ahead and vote in the current Film Spotting poll. When did you stop taking Tom Cruise for granted? And if you haven't started listening to the Film Spotting family of podcasts, you're missing out on some good stuff, some different perspectives. Those are the next picture show and Film Spotting SVU. You can find them both in Apple Podcasts or through your preferred podcast app. Out in wide release this weekend, All I See Is You, a blind woman's relationship with her husband changes when she regains her sight and discovers disturbing details about themselves. Blake Lively and Jason Clark star in that one. American Assassin, because every week we need a movie that has American in the title. Counterterrorism thriller with Michael Keaton and Dylan O'Brien. And... Mother! It's out. I don't know what you and Michael said about this movie. I... Can't wait to hear this show for myself and your review out in limited release. First, They Killed My Father, a daughter of Cambodia, remembers Angelina Jolie directed this biopic. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about Kingsman, The Golden Circle, the follow-up to 2014's Kingsman, The Secret Service. And we will share my complete conversation with Kogo Nada, the wonderfully insightful and talented director behind the new movie, Columbus. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you liked what you heard, please tell a friend, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. All of that will help us reach new listeners. Our music this week comes from Feist. It's from the album Pleasure. More information is at listentofeist.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Mother! Mother! Hey, Ma! Mother! Mother! Ma? Mother! 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 That's the one. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.